Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is one of Britain's leading royal historians, Dr. David Starkey. Starkey has lectured at the London School of Economics and authored numerous books and television series on the English monarchy. He's also known for his blazingly sharp commentary on BBC Four's debate program, The Moral Maze, BBC One's Question Time, and most recently, covering the Queen's Platinum Jubilee for GB News. Since David Starkey has written dozens of books and produced hours upon hours of documentary television, I was curious how he's able to produce such a large body of work. Well, I'm, I am prolific, actually, Alec, and I'm not. Uh, if you've noticed, there's, there are terrible hiatuses. The books tend to cluster very closely together. There are moments when I churn stuff out almost unconsciously. I mean, let's deal with the two poles of how I write and what I've done. Um, let's take the one where my late partner, James Brown, who plays a key role in so much of this, said I should never say. My Elizabeth book, uh, which is on the, the life of the, not the present Queen Elizabeth, of course, but the first Queen Elizabeth, who comes to the throne at the same sort of age five centuries ago in 1558. I wrote that book starting in the very end of August 1999, and I had finished it by the end of January. And I wrote it, and James said I should never say this, with a sense of dictation, of somebody talking to me. Mm-hmm. A kind of inner process, and um, it's a book that I think is a, a good piece of history, but more important than else, it's a kind of... It's, it's an attempt at re-envisaging historical biography through a medium of the novel and through, I mean, in terms of style and through a very, very conscious exercise of how to write. 
Um, the chapters are very short. There are normally very short sentences. There's mm -hmm. one chapter which many reviewers got terribly excited about, which is a page long. It deals with the death of Elizabeth's great rival, um, her cousin, uh, her, her half-sister, uh, Mary Tudor. And it says all that it needs to do, cleverly, succinctly, and above all, finally. It's about a death. I was writing it much more as you would have written fiction in terms of the flow of the of the sense of the the language driving it. On the other hand, the other pole of my creativity or lack of it uh, or productivity or lack of it is my biography of Henry VIII, which one way or another, I suppose, I started in 1967 and have not yet fully finished. <laughs> No, you, which, which, uh, quite you published seriously. an unfinished book. I well, I published the first volume of the, right, of exactly. the, of the biography, right. the the one on, again on Henry's youth. It's not. It's it's a kind of deliberate fragment, and my great problem with that book has been. I suppose I know too much. Uh, you can know too much. You can have too much detail. Uh, I've also because again I know too much. I've been changing my mind. Well, give, give me an example of what you changed your mind about. I thought I understood the relationship between Henry VIII and his father, Henry VII. I thought I understood the beginning of the reign, which, of course, is, is the moment at which a monarch, you know, like a president or a Napoleon in his first hundred days, it's when you really put your impress on things. And then I discovered I was wrong. And I think one of the most important things to be aware of is when you are wrong. So many people persist with an original idea, an original insight, even when the evidence tells them that it's wrong. And I can't do that. Um, I always write directly from the historical evidence. Again, one of the things that people, when they're being kind, some people are being very unkind. What people say about my books is there's a sense of the history actually getting up and talking to you. And the reason for that is I write directly from the sources. Mm -hmm. The basic way I proceed, you know, in Six Wives or Elizabeth or indeed Henry, I operate from a chronological um, in other words, in strict order of events, um, list of documents, dates, whatever, that act as the spine of the narrative. I'm a passionate believer in narrative history, in telling the story, but the evidence is there. So when you're doing the research, is there a small grouping of sources for that? In other words, when you want to understand the truth and you want the facts, as you recognize them, about Henry VIII's childhood and all of the history you've given us this thumbnail about just now, where do you typically go? Where does that exist in England? It exists in various forms, some of them very, very well-known, Alex, and some of them that we hardly know at all. I mean, the revelations that I came up with, the issue of money, is going through uh, the records of Henry VII's private finances. And the reason I, uh, as it were, rethought them was there was a remarkable project. The manuscripts exist, they're pretty continuous, though with some rather large gaps at awkward moments. But there was a project to transfer... 
a very modern kind of project, to edit the manuscripts and to put them online. And I was involved in that project as the kind of senior citizen, if you like, an earlier generation of scholar and all the rest of it. So I suddenly started going through them with a degree of detail that I'd never done before. Remember, you're looking at a, effectively a daily record of royal expenditure on everything from, you know, and I have bought, what might it be, a couple of bonnets for one of my pages to <laughs> I am going to send a hundred and thousand, odd thousand pounds, right? So between everything from tuppence mm. to hundreds of thousands of pounds, uh, all of course uh, expressed in Roman numbers, which doesn't, doesn't necessarily make life very easy. But I did two things with, with this set of accounts. Um, I looked at them simply in terms of retotaling them and thinking about what the totals meant. I mean, interestingly, a, a generation of earlier scholars came up with, with these figures, uh, but they were using 18th century transcripts rather than the original manuscripts. And it was a very great German scholar who did the basic work. And he looked at that figure of £100,000 and he said simply, this is impossible it must be a mistranscript. It can't have happened. And then, of course, I discovered it had. And historians simply tend to repeat each other. They don't question. We take shortcuts and because it's much easier. And also, there's a, a peculiar thing. The way modern scholarship works, which is this emphasis on citation. You cite a source. But, of course, once a mistake has actually got into the process... Mm -hmm unless you go back right, right to the beginning. Mm -hmm. And here again, like, so there's a, it, it, it's, it's strange in the sense that your own period can very much colour uh, your approach. And my attitude to scholarship was formed in two very different ways, at very different periods of my life. The first was when I was a young man at Cambridge. I had a, a remarkable teacher, a man called, uh, his, his name is normally given as Geoffrey Elton. His real name is Gottfried Rudolf Ehrenberg. He is one of those extraordinary Jewish refugees of the 1930s who <laughs> totally transform intellectual life in Britain and America. And he represented the high German tradition of rigorous academic scholarship. And I studied with him in my final year as an undergraduate student and the I did my research with him. And I suppose, in retrospect, the great moment of my emerging as an independent scholar was when I was still, what would I have been? I'd have been 22. I was in my final year as an undergraduate. I was doing my special subject with him. And the special subject was, again, it was on, on the 1530s. And you didn't have original documents, but you had extracts from them. And Geoffrey had done the work very carefully, and he transcribed them, and he described them. And I can still remember the moment as a tentative hand went up and said, Professor Elton, I think you've got this document wrong. <laughs> As a 22-year-old, wow. this great man. And do you know what? I was right. And I thought at that point, well, I can probably do this. Now, you mention that Henry VII is the commencement, if you will, or I'll, I'll let you use your words, 
of the House of Tudor. Explain Great. to our listeners who, uh, you know, many Americans have zero knowledge of, of the course. history of the yep. British family and little to none of the current British family. They only know scandal and, and, and gossip and so forth. What is the birth of a house? What is a house? And how does one house take over, if you will, or come to the fore? We're now in the period of the House of Windsor, which I think that was formed in 1917, correct? Mm. So what is a house, and how does a house come to the fore, if you will? Well, uh, you have the Kennedys. You have a succession of father, son, and then nephews, nieces, grandchildren, and whatever. And that's exactly the same. It's a dynasty. Uh, Again, you know, there's a famous film, there's a famous TV series called Dynasty, about the successive generations of a family. And that is what it is. The the various dynasties that have ruled the English throne take these names. They're often names that we give them backwards. Now, how does one dynasty succeed another? Well... Um, In the case of 1485, which is the succession between the House of York and the House of Tudor, you succeed by killing. Again, very much, I suppose, you know, like, like many modern TV series, one monarch kills another monarch. An aspirant monarch kills the his rival. And literally at the Battle of Bosworth... In 1485, Richard III of the House of York and Henry VII, he's not yet called Henry VII, he's called Henry Earl of Richmond, they literally fight. They don't quite fight face to face, but you know, it's like something out of a, f- a fantastic myth. He charges down at the head of his knights, mounted on horseback, wearing full armour. He has got the crown, the actual gold element of the crown, the band of the crown put on over his helmet. They charge down with their great lances towards Henry VII, Henry Earl of Richmond, and his very small army at the bottom. And Richard is literally aiming to to strike at Henry Earl of Richmond himself. He aims for his standard. He actually cuts down his standard bearer. And he's only brought down because, again, the paradox... Henry VII takes the throne of England. Henry Earl of Richmond takes the throne of England with French help. And Henry Earl of Richmond emerges triumphant on the field of Bosworth and is literally crowned with the band of Richard's crown, which had been torn off his helmet and is put on Henry's... uh, and it had been found in a hawthorn bush. It's quite clear this actually is the legend, but it's true. It actually happens. And he's crowned on the battlefield. So, you know, it is out of medieval fantasy, right? Yes. It's true. Yes. Now, how is the House of Windsor invented? Well, yes. uh, 1917 is quite a long way from 1485. Yes. And what happens in 1917, it's a PR exercise, a pure PR exercise, and one of the most brilliant pieces of PR that's ever been carried out by the early 20th century, as it had been since the beginning of the 18th century, as it was when America separates by an act of rebellion from Great Britain. Britain is ruled by a German royal house, by the House of Hanover, and it remains to an extraordinary extent German uh, through the following two centuries, through the 19th century and into the early 20th century, because of their marriage customs. They marry back into Germany. So, for example, Victoria marries her remote cousin called uh, Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, and Victoria and Albert actually converse with each other in German. 
They write letters to each other in German. They discuss the fate of the British Empire in German. And this continues right through to the beginning of the 20th century, when unfortunately, of course, in 1914, England and Germany go to war. But of course, if you're fighting a war in an age of nations and nationhood, how can you have your ruler being German? Right. When you're fighting the Germans in absolute war, the First World War, I mean, even more than the American Civil War, is the first total war. You can't do it. So wh what you do is you reinvent. And so you completely reinvent the monarchy. You rename it. You give it a consciously English name. You give it this name, Windsor. Brilliant, you know, it's Shakespeare, it's the Merry Wives of Windsor, <clears throat> it's a little touch of soft soap, you know, Woods of Windsor, the kind of nice smell on your hands. It's the English countryside. It's marketing. It's the, great, the great historic castle. It's masterly. So you reinvent the name, but you do much more than reinvent the name, you reinvent everything. You reinvent the marriage custom. You were talking about the fact that we just know the opera soap opera. The modern soap opera of monarchy also goes back to 1917 because for the first time they decide their children can marry English men and English women. So you can present this as romance, you know, the sort of romance of the marriage of Charles and Diana that goes so catastrophically wrong. You reinvent royal ceremony. Before this point, most royal ceremony is private. Royal marriages take place in tiny little spaces, like the Chapel Royal at St James's. Now suddenly, they go back to the Abbey or they go to St Paul's, they go into splendour. You do something even more remarkable, you reinvent, you know, we have this funny business in Britain, the honours system, you know, commanders of the British Empire like me and all this stuff. All this is invented in 1917 for the very first time that people who are not part of a narrow aristocratic circle can be given titles, honours, whatever. Uh, and it, I suppose what it really amounts to, Alex, is you consciously make the monarchy a paradox. You invent democratic royalty. Right, you right. make monarchy democratic. And it's, it's a profound paradox because, you know, again, the English, because of Parliament, because of our limit, history of limited government going right, right back to Magna Carta. People think of England as having been sort of always democratic. It's not true. Right. We only become a full democracy after the First World War. Historian David Starkey. If you enjoy conversations about government and power, check out my interview with an expert on American history, Michael Wolff author of the book Fire and Fury on the Donald Trump presidency. I think what I felt most of all is that everybody there was tainted by this and felt tainted by this and believed that they would not come out ahead, that this was a net loss. All of the people around Trump, that's, what, that's the conclusion that they came the to. The opposite of what you would expect people to feel. Yeah, to and remember, serve remember people come out of the White House and they make lots of money and right. they're famous and they have lots of influence. And, and maybe and, proud of their work. Exactly. And literally all of these people who went in thinking this would happen to them and came out as the months rolled on thinking, this is all broke. This is not going to work. This is not going to end well for anybody. 
Hear more of my conversation with Michael Wolff in our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, David Starkey shares his thoughts on Queen Elizabeth's controversial handling of the death of Princess Diana. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Since the royal family has played such a large role in the life and work of Dr. David Starkey, I wanted to know if the crown loomed large in his early life. 
very much so. I mean, let's be truthful, not in a particularly enthusiastic way. My family background was modest. My parents were very definitely working class. My father had left school at 11, my mother at 13. Uh, He was a manual worker. My father's politics were very radical. My father wanted to be a pacifist. Uh, He finally decided he couldn't declare his pacifism in the Second World War because he'd been unemployed for four terrible years in the 1930s, um, undergoing terrible poverty. He was a radical member of the Labour Party. He was a leading local trade unionist and all that. I first became absolutely aware of the monarchy at a key moment of my life and that of many people of my generation, which was the coronation of Elizabeth II in 1953. I'd remember the day in absolute detail. It was the first time I'd seen television. And then you watch the ceremony, which is extraordinary. It's magical. This woman who was then radiantly beautiful, clad in white as the centre of this vast ceremony. It's like like a Japanese imperial coronation. It goes on for about six hours Mm -hmm. in this huge space of the abbey with all these old distinguished gentlemen wearing scarlet and and fur if they're members of the nobility or in elaborate copes and mitres if they're clergy and this woman at the centre of it um, magical so that's the moment I think at which I first and as I said I engage in a way which which resonates in my memory to the moment we're speaking What would you say in her reign most people in the States the scandal-obsessed United States. But in this jubilee now, 70 years of this woman serving as queen, I I listened to some of the retrospectives and commentary of people, and they would all acknowledge that pretty much the only real meaningful setback for her was the handling of the death of Lady Diana. That was the only really raging criticisms she faced in her reign of so many years. Would you agree that that was really the only real major setback for her? Yes. I mean, equally, I think that the British public at the time of Diana, in the same way that we did at the time of the George Floyd incident in 2020 and with COVID, we went through one of those things which the great British historian, Lord Macaulay, said, there is nothing as ridiculous as the British public in one of its periodical fits of morality. And what you got with Diana was a clash between two completely different views of what monarchy is about. For the Queen, monarchy is about service. It's about duty. It's about getting on with things, getting up in the morning, doing it even if you don't feel very good, never telling anybody if your feet are hurting or you feel miserable. For Diana, although Diana, you know, she's the daughter of a great English family, uh, English aristocratic family, the Spencer Churchills, Diana always behaved as though she'd been born in Orange County. Um, She was profoundly American in her attitudes to celebrity. She saw monarchy as celebrity. She saw her role as to be emotionally honest. At a time, of course, when the great problem with with monarchy uh, is that it's an individual and a family that is required to have its personal life and its family life turned into some sort of symbol. 
Now, there's always going to be the risk of a violent clash between the reality of the humanity and the enormous hopes which are vested in it. And one of the ways that the Queen has always dealt with that is by simply silence. No one really knows what she thinks about anything. Whereas with Diana, Diana decided that the only way, and quite understandably, that she could protect herself in the horrors that it turned out of her marriage with Charles was by talking about it, was by being open about it, by using the media as she saw it to redress the balance of power against her husband's family and what she saw as the conspiracy of the media uh, against her. And so you have, on the one hand, somebody who believes in shutting everything up, the Queen, and you've got somebody else called Diana who believes in letting it all hang out. You know, the, the famous interview with Martin Bashir, which we now know is a product of the most shady behaviour by the BBC, but that equally the princess went along with it because she recognised she was in fact a most brilliant media operator. Diana made monarchy and made royalty about celebrity. The Queen has always is she's taken the totally opposite view that monarchy and celebrity are enemies. They may look the same, they're different. So it was really, it was a, what happened between the Queen and Diana was, I think, a genuine tragedy. It was a clash of two different views of right and wrong. Um, it was utterly irreconcilable. And, and, and although that, what you're saying, I, I, I completely understand, some people on this side of the pond, if you will, were also speculating that that family wasn't happy about the fact that... And you can explain to me the schematics of this, which is that if she divorces Charles, she's still entitled to a title herself because she has children with him. She's the mother of royal blood. And if she had married Fayed, he would be entitled to a title as well. Having no, married no, no, her, no, he no, would no, not no, have been. No, no, no. no. All, of, all of that is total fiction. Right. The issue of, you're quite right to put your finger on the issue of divorce. There is a profound struggle as to whether or not divorce is acceptable. Remember, virtually nobody gets divorced before the 1960s. Yes. It's very difficult to get. In Britain, it's virtually impossible. And what, what happens is the monarchy in Britain is used as a kind of front in that struggle by the Church of England, by its, its astonishingly talented, though I think rather malign archbishop, Archbishop Cosmo Gordon-Lang, it's used as a kind of battering ram to or, or wait to keep the lid on divorce. Um, and again, of course, there is the whole trauma in the mind of, of, of everybody who is royal, which is the marriage and the, the catastrophic marriage, which forces his abdication of the Queen's uncle, of Edward VIII, to the American Mrs. Simpson. Um, and it's this idea of the monarchy and divorce being fundamentally opposed to each other. Right. In fact, there was absolutely no rule against it. There's no definite rule against it. It was simply that it had become a method of symbolising the monarchy as the great virtuous British family. And this is why the Queen has experienced so much trauma. She, you know, with her marriage with the Duke of Edinburgh, whatever really happened, we will not know for generations, I imagine, because of the closure of manuscripts, but they were always able to present the, the appearance and I think the, the reality of genuinely happy, creative marriage. Unfortunately, her children couldn't. 
it therefore very quickly becomes a tension between a myth of the monarchy as a happy royal family and the reality of them as an unhappy family characterised by divorce and of course the marriage of Charles and Diana and its hideous dissolution becomes as it were the test case it becomes the moment at which that image is finally blown up. Author and historian David Starkey If you're enjoying this conversation be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, David Starkey shares his thoughts on where things went wrong with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Since royal historian David Starkey has had such a long-trained eye on the monarchy, I was curious if he foresaw Megxit, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's exit from the royal family. No, not at all. Uh, I I took it exactly. I mean, this shows, you know, that, that evidence is everything. The notion of the historian of profit is dangerously wrong. I made exactly the wrong guess. I thought that the marriage to Meghan was remarkable. She, you know, she's beautiful. She's intelligent. Uh, she's highly disciplined. I mean, he was a harem scarum lad. It looked to be exactly the right thing. And the fact, of course, that uh, she she is mixed race uh, in one. I mean, so it's, it's silly to say even better, but it, it expressed a reality of our modern I, I hate the word multicultural but uh, which is which is the wrong word but 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 our di- the intense diversity of our societies it expressed it beautifully in fact i put the phrase about that the marriage of the two of them uh, was in itself a kind of direct modernization of the monarchy but then of course it turned out that meghan and later on Harry, decided they wanted to do it, in the words of Frank Sinatra, their way. Now, unfortunately, monarchy doesn't work like that. Mm. And they found themselves in exactly the same trap as Diana, exactly the same trap as Edward VIII, exactly the same trap that Henry VIII was in. And remember, Henry VIII, to escape from that trap, had to do things that were unthinkable. He to break with the Roman Church. He to tear his family apart. He to tear the country apart. I mean, it is not even then an easy thing to do. But of course, because of the power of his personality, the then power of the monarchy, the inheritance from his father, and so on, he was able to do it. But of course, Meghan and Harry found themselves up against this machinery, and they took the decision. Okay. It won't change to accommodate us. We'll get out. And I think it's a profound sadness. But I would also put it in a more simple way, I think, Alex. I think Harry married his mother. I'm told lots of men marry their mothers. And you know, Meg- uh-huh. Megan is a kind of version of Diana. She embodies many of the same instincts, many of the same desires. And it's very easy to see. I think Harry will eventually find his position a very lonely one. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's bought into, you know, this boy who was in the army, uh, this boy who loved soldiering, who uh, established a, a very serious reputation as working for injured servicemen and injured veterans and whatever. He now finds himself in that, I think, rather empty world of Californian celebrity that rootless world, yeah. the world of the artificiality of Netflix deals and so on. Right. Um, I wonder how long he will last. I, I, I feel the same exact way. I, I watched this whole thing play out and I thought, my God, I mean, my glib joke was, you gave up all of that to live in Santa Barbara? Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I mean, all your family and history and duty and you were in the military, you understood that kind of service and duty and you gave all that to go live over there where, I mean, 
Unlike any other place I've ever visited, someone sticking your thermometer in your mouth to tell you how hot you are every five minutes or how hot you're not. And if you're at the top of that game, if you're a winner, if all of that business is, is, is rolling in your direction, uh, what's, what's better than that? But once that cools off, boy, it's lonely. It's, it's the loneliest place in the world. Now, my last question for you, one would assume that as the public relations fortunes of the royal family ebb and flow and go up and down related to scandal and so forth, uh, or perceived scandal, I should say, I think that they've been uh, treated very unfairly in some circumstances. So the Jubilee comes, would you say that their stock is up? Would you say that the stock is up compared to the... Because when the Meghan, here in the States, the Meghan Markle thing played out like, if not... A thick stripe of racism exists among some denizens of Buckingham Palace. There's at least a tinge of that there. And now with the Jubilee and the focus going back on to the Queen herself, is are things, uh, uh, would you say that they're more popular again in the UK? I think, again, we've got to be really blunt about this. I think that that statement which was deliberately vague about, you know, somebody said something about what the colour of the child might have been. I think that was an indecent thing to do. I think it was a shocking and disgraceful thing to say mm -hmm. because it was entirely unspecific and untestable. And it was and the unattributed, nearest, yeah. It was the merest slur. It was the dirtiest thing you could do. And frankly, I have the lowest opinion of the woman who did it. I think it's and indeed the man. So let's say that. One of the things that is most striking about the royal family is how absolutely uncontaminated by racism they are. I mean, if you go back and you look at the history of the monarchy, really from Victoria, everybody I think has heard uh, of her ex extraordinary, it may even have been a marriage, though it's not quite likely, but extraordinary close relationship with, with her Scottish gamekeeper, with John Brown. The man who succeeds John Brown in Victoria's affections is an Indian servant, the Munchie. And the relationship of the royal family with, of course, a, a deeply multi-ethnic British empire is one in which there's been a kind of rejoicing in the diversity and the, the Queen adores Africa, spent enormous amounts of time there. You know, she actually learns that she's queen in Kenya and so on. So I think that, that this charge of racism is simply a disgraceful slur. And I think also, again, it's very important, you know, things play out differently on either side of the Atlantic. <laughs> Meghan and Harry were playing the American card. <laughs> they were playing the celebrity, let it all hang out, victimhood card. I'm afraid in Britain, those cards don't play quite so well. Um, the general sense in Britain, as uh, Harry and Meghan turned up very briefly for the Jubilee and then disappeared very quickly, was, well, they're now second division. They were first division. They willfully pulled themselves out. And you know what? They don't much matter. Because what you saw on the balcony of Buckingham Palace was the Queen. The Queen's son, the Prince of Wales, his son, Prince William, and then Prince William's three children, including two boys. So you have literally a kind of, you know, there's the famous moment in Macbeth uh, where Macbeth sees a line of kings stretching out at the end. Well, there was the line of monarchs on Buckingham Palace, and there was no Harry, and there was no Meghan, and they don't matter except in Hollywood. So do, you don't despair about the future of the monarchy. Will Charles be a good king? 
I think he probably will be. I think he's a very serious man. Right. Uh, arguably, he's a little bit too serious. And again, also, he's espoused what we always used to regard as rather silly things like ecology. They're now absolutely central. Um, my great fear is the opposite, that by, uh, and Prince William is even more vocal on these kind of questions, suddenly, of course, the whole question of environmentalism is going to be, because it's now the forefront of politics, is going to be a matter of major political dispute, especially now that net zero visibly carries very much non-net cost. In other words, it carries huge costs following the uh, the, the Ukraine war the rocketing of fuel costs, which is much greater in Europe than it is in America. So there is a risk you know, that, that by espousing what is now a very popular do doctrine of ecology, you do store up the risk of you know, taking too overt a stance on what is actually a very, very definite issue of current politics. But I don't think that's too much to worry about. And you can see with uh, William and Kate, they're like a postcard for you almost look at William and Kate and it looks like pictures of Elizabeth and Philip traveling the country. They seem like they're born to the role and they completely understand what's expected of them. And I think that's right. I mean, again, to put it in, you know, m more PR sort of terms, I think the point is that both William and especially Kate, they are agreeable, good-looking young people, but they're profoundly conventional. They're happy in their skins doing what they're doing. Whereas, of course, poor Harry was a lost soul. Right. Diana was a lost soul. And these two are not. They, they are comfortable in enacting the role, which is, in a sense, you know, it's a kind of... what in, I mean, you know, you talk about... One, we talk about middle America, don't we? I mean, their role is to kind of... is to enact a kind of middle British position. It come, seems to come to them naturally, comfortably... And they perform it beautifully. My thanks to you. My new, my new dream is to come over there and interview you live in some theater over there. I could listen to you talk for quite a while. You are a fascinating man, and you're an incredibly scholarly man, which I admire. And you've helped me, too, because I've always had this fascination with this uh, history. So thank you so much, sir, for your time, and thanks for coming on the show. And thank you. Historian Dr. David Starkey. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios and produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.